Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. Who's excited to be in church this morning? Well, you know, that actually surprised me. I was ready to rebuke you. I know this 8 o'clock crowd can be the rough crowd, but uh, no, you, I, I, was, I was impressed by that. Give yourself a hand for that. Amen. And yes, thank, appreciate those of you who prayed for Colin and I while we went to the C3 conference in Dallas or, or Grapevine, just north of Dallas. And, you know, people have asked, well, what did you learn? Now, it was, we learned a lot, but probably the most important thing I learned is that all the cool preachers wear tennis shoes. I told my wife that, and she said, honey, I think it's going to take more than that <laughs> at your age. So anyway, kind of. <sighs> Seriously, it, it was a good time. We did learn a lot, and I uh, appreciate those of you who prayed for us. So one day while Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of God, someone interrupted him with the question. The person, interestingly, the person isn't identified by name. He's identified by this title, a rich, young ruler. Matthew, who was there and kind of witnessed this dialogue take place in real time, tells us what the question was, and he tells us what Jesus' response was to the question. Matthew 19, verses 16 and 17. Teacher, the rich young ruler speaking here, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, and he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, Jesus' reply here sounds a little confusing. I mean, it sounds like he's saying that, that he's not good or he doesn't know anything about goodness. But we know that that's not true because that not only would contradict what the Bible says about Jesus, it would also contradict what Jesus said about himself. Look, Jesus isn't saying, I'm not good. He's saying, in effect, to the rich man, what he's saying is, look, I'm not interested in lip service. Don't call me good unless you're ready to call me God. That's what he meant by that statement. And when we get to the end of the story, we know why Jesus responded that way. Let's read on, verses 18 and 19. Rich young ruler, what, what, do, what do I need to get eternal life? So Jesus tells him, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. To which the guy replies, this, this is fascinating, the guy replies, verse 20, all these I have kept. Really? He kept all of them? Because if this is true, think about this. If this is true, then this guy clearly has to be one of the most religious, powerful, influential people in all of the Bible. I mean, this guy's the real deal, right? He's got all the boxes checked, right? He's wealthy, he's young, he's got a platform of influence, and he's kept all the commandments. This is the person that we all want to be. And yet, in spite of, of all this, something's, something's not quite right. We know that from his next question to Jesus in verse 20. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? You see that? What do I still lack? Lack? Are, are you kidding me? You don't lack anything. You've got the whole package, brother. You've got wealth. You're young. You have your whole life in front of you. You've got a platform of influence. And apparently, you've kept all the law. Yet, don't miss this, 
Yet with all he had going for him, he, he still recognized something was missing. Something was lacking, to use his word, on the inside. Now, to help explain this young man's problem, we, I need to get a little theological with you here, but you know what? I'm confident that you can handle it because you're smart people. And do you know how I know you're smart people? Because you come here to family church. That's why. So put your floaties on. We're going to wade out into the deep end for just a minute. Systematic theology is an academic discipline that formulates kind of an orderly, rational, and, and coherent account of the different doctrines of the Christian faith. And systematic theology divides sin into two categories. And those categories are sins of commission, doing something that you should not have done. And let me pause here to say that, that there are some things you should not do, that we should not do, right? But there's another category of sin called sins of omission. And this is not doing something that you should have or could have done. You see the difference there between those two? Now, over the years, I don't know exactly how it's happened, but somehow, some way, the church has become fixated on sins of commission. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And, and, and you'll be okay. The problem, the problem with that is you can do nothing wrong and still do nothing right. Does that make sense? It's poor grammar, but goodness is not the absence of badness. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe it does honor God when we do what's right and make decisions not to do, you know, what God's word says we shouldn't do. But let's not forget about the things that God's word says that we should be doing that maybe we're not doing. See, th this unbalanced approach to sin causes unsaved people to do exactly what this rich young ruler did. Focus on the wrong thing when considering surrendering their life to Jesus. Because instead of focusing on what they'll gain, they focus on what they'll have to give up. And it's, all of us have been there. I, I mean, I was there. Now, on this side of it, it seems ludicrous, all that I gave up to serve Christ. But when you have not crossed that precipice yet, that's a valid argument that the devil will throw at you. Oh, look at all, you know, what, what are people going to say about you? Look at all this that you're going to have to give up. All right? So what I tell people is, look, just focus on what Jesus said to do and then don't worry about what he said not to do because my experience is if you just focus on what Jesus said to do, the not to do's will take care of themselves. They really will. And, and that, that, you guys just missed a good place to say amen right there. Just focus on what he said to do and the not to do's will take care of themselves. So basically, the rich young ruler, he's got that sin of commission thing down pat. He's not doing anything wrong, but still, something's missing. And what's missing is that sin of omission, things that he could have, should have, would have done. Verse 21, Matthew 19, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, this is the point in the narrative where you start to kind of feel sorry for this guy. I mean, we have the advantage of looking back on history, and we understand why Jesus asked this guy to do this. But seriously, Jesus? Sell everything? I mean, isn't that a little extreme? Have you ever thought about how unfair many of Jesus' parables were? I mean, strictly from a human perspective. 
Think about it. The parable of the talents. The guy who buried one talent and then gave that talent back to his master when he came back. I mean, (laughs) in an economy like this, you know, I'm thinking that's not too bad of a deal, right? Breaking even in a recession. Hey, what's wrong with that? That, I mean, that's a win in my eyes. Yet Jesus calls him wicked. How about the parable of the laborers in the vineyard? Some worked all day, some only worked a couple hours, but they all got paid the same. Remember that parable? Even the brother of the prodigal son pointed out the unfairness when his dad welcomed his irresponsible brother back home after squandering his inheritance. Those parables, listen, those parables are only unfair if you view them through a a worldly, temporal mindset. They make perfect sense when you view them through an eternal mindset and the kingdom of God. That unfairness, that unfairness was Jesus' way of cutting to the chase and getting straight to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is anything that stands between us and him. Anything that keeps us from fully committing our lives to Jesus. For this guy, it was his wealth and his possessions. So here's my take on the fairness of this particular story. Recognizing the status of who he was dealing with, I think Jesus, I think Jesus decided to go for the jugular with this guy. The guy said he had kept all the commandments that Jesus listed, but something was still missing or lacking. So Jesus tells him, go sell all his possessions and give the money to the poor. And don't miss this next statement because this is huge. And you will have treasure in heaven. Please note how Jesus is intentional about presenting the kingdom of God to this guy on a level that he understands. Remember, this guy is wealthy, right? He, he, he understands. He, he understands investment, risk, and reward, ROIs. He understands all of that. What he didn't understand was that this was a heavenly investment with a heavenly reward. And the reason that he didn't understand that was because of his identity, because his identity, watch this now, his identity was his possessions, was in his possessions, not in Christ. So let me tell you what's happening here. I think the rich young ruler had an identity identity crisis. I think he put his hope and security in his financial portfolio, and that became a deal breaker for him. Sadly, he just couldn't give that up, and he walked away. Didn't just walk away, but walked away sorrowful. The rich young ruler is the poster boy for what happens when people look to anything or anyone other than Christ for their identity. You end up walking away empty and sad, which leads to our big idea for this morning's message. If we look to anything or anyone other than Christ for our security and identity, will end up like this rich young ruler, empty and sad or sorrowful. See, it wasn't the guy's wealth that was the problem. It was how he tied his identity to his wealth and his status. Jesus isn't opposed to us having things. He's opposed to things having us. I don't think it's a coincidence that we're not given this guy's name. He simply identified as rich young ruler. Why? Because that's where he put his security and identity. Jesus knew the thing that was keeping him from eternal life were his possessions. That's why Jesus required that of him. Because God created us, we'll only find our true identity in a personal relationship with him. Outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, our lives will be a continuous pursuit of things 
that will ultimately leave us at best empty and at worst broken and damaged. One way this brokenness impacts our lives is through something that psychologists have coined identity crisis. That, that was first coined by a German-American psychologist named Eric Erickson. It's defined as, an identity crisis is defined this way, a developmental event that involves a person questioning their sense or, of self or place in the world. And the reason that this is important to know is because everyone sitting in here this morning, if you're 10 years of age or older, you've either had, will have, or you're going to go through, or you're going through a, an identity crisis right now. One thing that this Erickson discovered is how much of our personalities and self-esteem are actually molded and shaped by the significant things that we encounter in life, both good and bad. And if there's not a stabilizing resource, an anchor, something that we can hold on to during the, the bad things that happen to us, we'll drift and either find an identity somewhere else, or an identity will be placed on us in the form of a, a label. And this can look different for all of us. First time I remember being labeled, I was in fifth grade. And again, I, as I share this, keep in mind, I, I was a fifth grader. So I didn't recognize, you know, I'm, I'm looking back sharing from the perspective I have now, but at the time I didn't know it was an identity crisis. I didn't know what was going on, but my parents um, separated, were going through a divorce, eventually divorced, and that kind of sent me into about a decade-long identity crisis of searching for who I was and why I was here. And I'll never forget the day that that identity crisis was triggered. I was sitting in Mrs. Brownlee's fifth grade class, Pinckney Elementary School, 6th Street in Lawrence, Kansas. It was the end of the school day and the bell had just rung. I grabbed my lunchbox and some books and walked out the door of the classroom and standing right outside the door was my mom. And it startled me when I saw her because my parents were separated at the time. Their divorce wasn't final and so I'd kind of been spending some time with my dad, some time with my mom. At that particular time, I'd been staying with my dad and he was dropping me off at school in the mornings and the last thing he said to me when he dropped me off that morning was that he would pick me up that afternoon. So when I walked out the door at the end of the school day that day and saw my mom, I wasn't sure what to think. She took my hand and said that she wanted me to go with her. What I didn't realize at the time was I, I was caught up in a custody battle because each one wanted custody of us, of me and my sister. All I knew was I was spending some time at my mom's and sometimes at my dad's. And I also remember one day my mom taking me to a lawyer's office and sitting down and the lawyer asking me if I wanted to live with my mom or my dad. And the same thing happened with my dad one time when I was staying with him. He took me to a lawyer's office. The lawyer asked me if I wanted to live with my mom or dad. What kind of a question is that to ask a fifth grader? Uh, both. I want to live with both of them. I didn't realize at the time that that wasn't an option. Seriously, as an 11-year-old, how are you supposed to answer that question? That's why I was surprised to see my mom standing outside my classroom that afternoon. She took my hand and said that she wanted me to go with her. 
And at this point, I, I was really confused. I remember walking to her car, my hand still in hers. The closer we got to her car, the more confused and scared I became because in my mind, I'm thinking, what if my dad's parked over there waiting to pick me up, as he always was when he took me to school? As we got closer to her car, this confusion and stress of the situation started affecting me physically. I remember my heart just started pounding. I began to feel kind of sick to my stomach. I wasn't sure what to do. And then right before she opened the door for me to get in, I yanked my hand out of my mom's hand and took off running to the other side of the school where my dad usually picked me up. Fortunately, he was there. I don't know what I would have done had he not been there, but he was there. I jumped in and got in with my dad. My heart still pounding, still feeling kind of sick. I don't know why I did that. I mean, how messed up is that? What kid yanks their hand out of their mom's hand and runs away from her? A kid who's lost his identity. That's who. I didn't hate my mom. Looking back, I now see how the crisis that my parents were going through at that time forced me to make decisions that a child that age should never have to make. Never have to make. And that led to my own identity crisis. But something happened inside of me that afternoon. I didn't recognize it at the time because I was just a kid and kids' vocabulary doesn't typically include words like, you know, rejection, security, identity crisis, nor should they. Doctors tell us that to have a healthy self-esteem, you need these following things. You need to feel loved. You need to have purpose. You need to feel secure. You need to feel significant. And you need to belong. I didn't understand any of this when I was in fifth grade, but here's what I knew. I knew that something happened inside of me that afternoon, something that sent me on a decade-long search for love and purpose and security and significance and acceptance. I also remember feeling labeled. One afternoon, we were out at recess, standing around with some other kids, and a friend of mine said out loud for everyone to hear, hey, Curtis, and I don't even know how it came up, but he said, hey, Curtis, your parents are divorced, aren't they? I don't know how he knew that because I didn't tell anyone. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. Remember, this was back in the 60s when divorce was still kind of had a stigma, was not near as common and accepted as it is today. I didn't tell anyone about my parents' divorce because I was embarrassed and ashamed about it. And this kid says, hey, Curtis, your parents are divorced, aren't they? I wanted to hide under a rock. I didn't know what to say. But I do remember looking back, I was labeled at that time. I was labeled. So over the next few years, I poured myself into sports. During my junior high and early high school years, I found acceptance in my, in my identity playing basketball. And say, Pastor, were you good? Are you kidding? The older I get, the better I was. <laughs> of course I was good. Eventually, sports weren't enough, and I began to look to other things for my identity and security, things that brought me into a network with other people who were also lost and insecure, people whose, whose lives were characterized by selfish, reckless living and other life-controlling issues. And what I didn't realize at the time was anything or anyone I looked to other than Jesus was always going to leave a void in my life. <clears throat> 
In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul's preaching in ancient Greece, which was the religious capital of the world at that time, in addition to the 12 main gods that the Greeks worshipped, Zeus, Poseidon, Aphrodite, Artemis, and all the other ones, they also had a bunch of other gods and goddesses that they worshipped. In fact, they were so passionate about their worship, they even made, think about this, they even made a statue to a god they called the unknown god, just to make sure they had all their bases covered. Isn't that interesting? Seriously, they had a, they had a god, a, an idol made up to the, to the unknown god, just to make sure that they had all the bases covered. Paul's trying to explain to them that, no, 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 there's only one God. There's only one true God. And so he makes this statement. It's in Acts 17, verse 28. And this verse here, more than any other in the Bible, shows us how we find our identity in Christ. Acts 17, 28. In him, talking about in Christ, we live and move and have our being. In other words, our true identity is found as we live acknowledge the very breasts that we have are a gift from God and move the way that we live our lives, the things we do and the things we say and have our being pursuing our God-given purpose in life. That's how we find our identity in Christ. Because finding our identity in Christ is a matter of lordship, being fully committed to following Jesus. It's also a matter of the heart, being honest with God and with ourselves two things that the rich young ruler couldn't or rather wouldn't do. He wouldn't submit completely to Jesus as his Lord, and he wouldn't be honest with himself and with God. How how ironic that Jesus asked him to do something he couldn't do, keep the law, and he lied and said he had done it. Then Jesus asked him to do something that he could do, sell your possessions and follow me, and he lied and said he couldn't. How ironic. This guy, this rich young ruler, found his identity in the things that he had accumulated during the course of his life, his possessions. Things that in and of themselves aren't bad. Because again, God's not opposed to us having things. He just wants to make sure that those things don't have us. And that was the case here. Jesus knew it, so that's what he asked the guy to give up. Now, when you read this story, again, the tendency is to kind of feel bad for the rich young ruler. And the reason that we feel bad for him is because we're focusing on what Jesus asked him to give up. But stop and consider what Jesus was putting on the table for him. Look at what Jesus was offering this guy in return. Between the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus and the New Testament, Jesus made the invitation to follow me no less than 27 times. Think about this. No less than 27 times, Jesus invited people, follow me. And each time, each time that he made that invitation, there should have been a collective gasp among the crowd. Follow Jesus? Are you kidding me? Quite often, part of our formal education process includes something called an internship. In fact, many uh, of our academic degrees and disciplines include some type of internship or practicum or student teaching. Anyone ever served as an intern or, or done your you know like done student teaching or something like that? Our son Colin got a journalism degree from KU, and uh, part of that process involved serving as an intern at, at Channel Five News. Well, well, you know, why do they do that? Well, partly because of the experience that can be gained, but also also because they know that the right internship with the right person oftentimes help people get on the right career path. It's the old adage, sometimes success is based on not what you know, but who you know, right? So looking at this from that perspective, I'm thinking an internship with Jesus ought to count for something on your resume, right? Hello? 
An internship with Jesus. Oh, yeah, I spent, uh, you know, three years with Jesus. That ought to count for something. Jesus offered that to the rich young ruler, and he turned it down. The disciples, think about this. Twelve otherwise ordinary, for the most part uneducated, blue-collar workers accepted Jesus' invitation to follow him. And look what following Jesus, look what that internship with Jesus did for them. God used them to change the course of history. Can you imagine what Jesus could have done with this rich young ruler had he accepted Jesus' internship? In the first century AD, the average person didn't travel more than a 35-mile radius of where they were born. Think about that, 35 miles, which means if you lived here in Wellsville in the first century, during your lifetime, the furthest uh, north you probably would have gone would have been to Lawrence, the furthest uh, east to Olathe, the furthest south to Garnett, and the furthest west to Guy and Mays Tavern in Williamsburg. Think about it, 35 miles, the furthest that anyone would travel during the course of their lifetime. Jesus' invitation says, follow me. And then he said, go into all the world. What? We had not been more than 35 miles. Go into all the world. A church historian by the name of Eusebius gives us the summary of the disciples' lives. Listen to this. This is amazing. At the end of their lives, Peter went to Italy. John ends up in Asia. James, the son of Zebedee, went to Spain. Even doubting Thomas went to India, all because they accepted Jesus' invitation to follow me. They all could have ended up living out their lives a stone's throw from the Sea of Galilee, but because they accepted the invitation to follow Jesus and had an internship with him, he not only expanded their geographical horizons, he expanded their spiritual influence because they became world changers. And not only that, think about this. They had VIP front row seats to every sermon Jesus preached. Can you imagine that? The rich young ruler made the same fundamental mistake that many people still make today. He looked for his identity in temporal things that don't last. Which, if you don't know Christ, that makes perfect sense. But if you do know Christ, that's the absolute worst thing that you could do. Because any happiness, any contentment, any satisfaction that you're going to get from anything outside of Christ is not only going to be short-lived, look, you're going to lose them anyway. You're going to lose them anyway. Was it Tony Evans that said, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? Can't take it with you. The rich young ruler was trapped by what he couldn't or wouldn't let go of. He wouldn't submit to the lordship of Jesus, and he wasn't honest with God or himself. And as a result, he walked away from his encounter with Jesus, sorrowful, sorrowful, leaving the opportunity of a lifetime sitting on the table. And as a result, at the end of his life, his identity changed from rich young ruler to rich old ruler. That's it. That's it. I sometimes wonder if this nameless guy who's identified only as a rich young ruler, I sometimes wonder if at the end of his life, as he reflected on the choices and decisions he made and the ones that he didn't make, I wonder if he thought back to that encounter that he had with Jesus that day, that afternoon. At the end of his life, I wonder if he realized that even though he still had everything, really he had nothing. He had nothing. During that time that I was out in the world, looking for love and acceptance in all the wrong places, letting other people label me, 
God and his sovereignty orchestrated events in such a way that my sister actually ended up moving into a foster home. Her foster parents turned out to be Nick and Enica Willems. Nick went on to become one of the lead elders of the Mustard Seed Church, which is where my sister began attending. She got saved, and she began praying faithfully for me. And in August of 1976, I was reintroduced to my Heavenly Father. And since then, since then, since I made him my Lord and Savior and began living and moving and having my being in Jesus, since then, I can honestly say that I have never felt more love. I've never felt more sense of purpose. I've never felt more safe and secure. I've never felt more significant. And I've never felt more accepted. October 28, 1949, a young man who had just graduated from Wheaton College was having his quiet time with the Lord. He knew that God had called him to go to Ecuador as a missionary to reach some of the primitive tribes that had never heard the gospel before. At some point during his prayer time and Bible reading time that fall day in 1949, Jim Elliott wrote these words, and here's actually a picture from his journal. And some of you have heard this quote. Jim Elliott wrote this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Less than three years later, February 2nd, 1952, Jim Elliott waved goodbye to his parents, boarded a ship for the 18-day trip from San Pedro, California to Quito, Ecuador to begin ministering to the Quechua tribe of Indians. After four years of faithfully serving the tribe of Indians on January 4th, 1956, Jim Elliott and four other co-workers, missionaries working with him, were tragically killed by a more primitive sect of the Quechua tribe. It's a fascinating story that time won't allow me to cover completely. There's been a movie made about it called The End of the Spear, books about it if you're interested in pursuing a story more. But I wanted to drill down on that quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That was Jim Elliott's way of saying what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What are you holding on to that you think you can't do without? Spoiler alert, you're going to lose it anyway. You're going to lose it anyway. Why not let go of it? And the it's going to look different for each of you, but one thing that every it has in common Whatever your it is, you're not going to find your security and identity in that. That's only found in Jesus. A couple of questions to kind of keep the discussion going through the week. What labels have been placed on you during your lifetime? Maybe there's one on you now. How did those make you feel? Are there any areas of your life where you've placed your security or looked for your identity? Anything outside of Christ? It's an endless pursuit. 
And then what is it you need to let go of? Because all of us have something. All of us have something. Let me pray for you. You know, the Quakers had a way of praying where they would start out placing their hands kind of face down, palms down, as a symbol of, of, of letting go of some things that they needed to let go of. It might be burdens they were carrying, sins that they needed to confess to the Lord. And, and, and so they would begin their prayers with their, their palms face down. And then at, one, at some point that they would turn their palms face up and receive what Jesus had for them. So I want us to all start out. Would you do this? Just put your hands out, palms down. Father, we come to you this morning with our, our, our hands face down, choosing to let go of those things that we placed above our commitment to you, burdens that, that we've walked in here with, labels that have been placed on us. We choose now to release those to you, Lord. We give those to you. Right now, we cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us. All guilt, all shame, we just release it into your hands now, Lord. And as we totally surrender to you, help us to live and move and have our being in you and you alone. Now turn your palms up. And Lord, now we choose to receive what you have for us. We thank you, Father, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your peace. And especially thank you for the new identity that you give us as a child of the Most High God. If you're here this morning and you've never received God's gift of salvation, or maybe you did it one time, but you're not in an ongoing, growing relationship with him now, but you'd like to make things right with him. If that's you, it'd be my honor to lead you in a prayer. Just, just, just pray this prayer after me. Just say, Lord, I know my life is broken and I can't fix it. I know I'm a sinner and I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And by your grace, help me to begin live, to live and move and have my being in you and you alone. Thank you for saving me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And from this day forward, help me to live and move and have my being in you as I place my security and identity in you. In Jesus' name, amen.